Greetings and welcome to the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. I am Bickergaard, of course, of course, of course, of course. And I can pronounce with uh, the greatest amount of confidence, nearly 100%, uh, that this book will be finished today. Purity of heart is the well one thing. Can't wait. I'm very, very excited to conclude the book and to begin uh, the process of thinking about the next book for the podcast, which I think is going to be 18 Upbuilding Discourses, as I've mentioned before. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to start those uh, those uh, discourses in that book and this podcast again until sometime after May 1st. Now, um, I'm going on that road trip, uh, which I've talked about. If you, uh, this is the first episode you've ever heard of uh, Bierkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. Um, going on a U.S. road trip uh from uh, a, uh, March 28th until May 1st, around in all of April. And I uh, mentioned this concept as under-promise and over-deliver. If I do do the podcast, then I'll, I will, if I feel motivated or have the time or have the space and the place and all that stuff. Uh, but I'm not planning to. I'm not planning to do the podcast again until after May sometime. Uh, so I had a bit of an insight the other day. Uh, road trips are good. Let me step back just for a moment and start with my little reflection thing. Road f- trips are good. I'm uh, going to meet with a lot of old uh, friends and uh, family that I don't see too often that live out of town. And it's easier for me to go to them uh, than, than to come to me for sure. Uh, I'm just a solitary individual. I truly am a solitary individual. And... Uh, Road trips are good because uh, it's good to have a plan. It's good to be flexible, but you have to have somewhat of a plan to know where your cards are. If you have to reshuffle or get new cards in the deck or lose some cards, uh, just use that kind of analogy. Uh, But the unexpected happens, and that is also positive. Uh, That can also be positive or negative. Uh, Sometimes things happen that aren't great. Sometimes wonderful things happen that are beautiful that you never saw coming. So it's going to be a combination of both. I'm trying to be prepared, but I'm not trying to hold too loosely onto it because uh, it's like uh, riding the wind. You have to let the wind take you uh, to some extent, and you have a plan, but you also know that you may need to change the plan. Uh, So I have everything in a Google Doc that I can access on my phone, but I plan to print it out one last time. Uh, next Monday, then after that, all other changes will have to be handwritten. I can put it on the Google Doc uh, on my phone, but it's easier if I um, have my clipboard. I'm a big clipboard guy. I like to uh, secure things, so I have everything printed out on paper, so it's easily accessible. And uh, it's not either paper or computer. It's usually both for me on a lot of things, anything of detail. Uh, so, again, if I do the podcast, I do the podcast. I'm not necessarily saying that I won't. I'm just saying I'm not promising to do it. It'll give you a good opportunity to go back and to listen to all the ones that I've done previously. But I did figure something out the uh, other day when I was considering, like, why is uh, Soren misunderstood? And why do non-religious people and people that have no Christian uh, element in their thinking and their philosophy, why do they still respond to Soren? And that's an interesting question to me. I don't know, entirely know. But I have a theory. So I'm going to offer the theory right now and see if it holds up. I haven't heard other people say this, but there's a chance that I picked this up somewhere else and I'm just repeating it. Uh, I try to be uh, careful about that. If I think I've taken the idea from somewhere to give people credit, I'm not one to steal ideas. I know how that feels. It's been done to me before many times. Um, 
Well, we talked about uh, last week in the, uh, in, in the beginning of the discussion of fragments on life's way or fragments, uh, let's see, a fragment of life, uh, that Soren is writing that book with a perspective of a pseudonym, that he's adopting a perspective of an author that he has purported to find the manuscript in a hidden section of the desk. And it comes out, and he reads it, and it's written by an individual by the name of Victor Ratmata, E-R-E-M-I-T-A. And uh, I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Don't correct me. That's fine. I'm acknowledging I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly. But if you do know how it's, pro know how it's pronounced, let me know. Um, and Victor is firmly uh, in, in stage one in, in life's way. He is an esthete. Uh, that would be Soren's term for that. And that's someone who wants to experience life at its fullest, the life that we have, the life on this planet. Wants to have good, a good life, a peaceful life, a pleasurable life, uh, enjoy the good things of life and minimize the bad. Um, they, uh, they want to uh, suck the marrow out of life, but they have no ethical commitments, which is the stage, uh, stage two, or religious commitments, which is stage three. And that was also outlined in his book, the, um, the book that we've already done in this podcast, uh, The Lily of the Field and the Bird of the Air. Uh, the first step is to be silent, if you recall those episodes. Uh, so Victor is presenting his perspective, not Soren. Uh, through the pseudonym of Victor, of course. And um, I think what happens when people respond to Soren, they're often responding to where they are on the stages uh, in life's way. So there's a lot of uh, people that are like Victor that are beginning to become dissatisfied with life. They think there's more. They hope there's more. Or they at least surmise there may be because they're discontented. All this pursuit of um, peace and pleasure and prosperity, the good life, um, has left them still with anxiety and emptiness. And what Soren would say is that person now has to experience stillness, profound stillness, uh, to hear God's voice because they've previously been so occupied that they haven't heard uh, God's voice in the midst of all the, all the chaos in the crowd. Um, so I think what's happening with these non-Christian philosophers or just the laymen or lay people out there that love Soren, they are responding to his pseudonymous works where they think that Soren's saying this. And it is in one way. Soren is the author behind the author. Uh, but Soren doesn't necessarily believe um, what that pseudonymous author author is saying, at least no more. He may have believed at one point, but he's moved beyond it. It's a true statement at that stage, uh, like the futility and the emptiness of life without God. Um, so people go through these stages, and they go through the, uh, the aesthetic uh, stage, and if they, uh, if they are still and they listen, God will move them uh, to the ethical stage, where they begin to see there's these principles, and it's not all about us, it's not all about me. Uh, we have to make commitments. We have to practice a sense of ethical goodness in the world uh, it doesn't necessarily need one need one need, it's not necessarily implied that one needs to believe in the eternity at that point uh, but the ethical there's a lot of ethical people out there that have no religious commitments i'm not one of these people that says well if you if you're not christian or non-religious person you're obviously evil beyond belief uh, 
Uh, sinfulness is, is, is not that easy to characterize as just somebody acting wickedly all the time. Uh, sinfulness could be selfishness, uh, which is we just don't hear the cries of others. We don't necessarily cause the cries, but we just don't hear them. That's sinfulness, but it doesn't it doesn't uh, play with the the idea that oh I'm ultimately the most wicked person imaginable because I'm not a Christian. Uh, people are a mixture of good and bad, and Christians are a mixture of good and bad. It's not our righteousness that becomes becomes that makes us Christians. It's it's Christ's righteousness in us that makes us a Christian. So I think what happens when people put up memes of Soren or they put up quotes of Soren online or elsewhere, um, they don't quite understand that Soren has adopted a pseudonym. And it's not really Soren saying it specifically in, in the philosophical, religious manner. He's adopting a perspective that's accurate to that perspective. He's being truthful to that perspective, but it's not like Soren necessarily is at that stage of life anymore. Uh, so I hope that's uh, a, bit, a bit of an explanation. But it, it got me understanding why Soren does have some resonance with non-Christians. Because uh, he's, he's speaking truthfully to the, where they are in the stages of life's way. And I'm getting a book by a philosopher by the name, last name of Mooney. And that's my mom's... Uh, my mom's mom's maternal name, so my grandmother, uh, was a Mooney, M-O-O-N-E-Y, uh, which is an Irish-descended uh, name. It's an Irish name. And during St. Patty's Day, I like to emphasize that I'm a quarter Irish. I come from about three-quarters Germanic uh, blood, uh, probably Scandinavian, ultimately, and which may explain some of my love for uh, Sorn, and some of it probably just Germanic, period. Hard to tell lost in the, uh, in the mist of time. But I am a quarter Irish, and the Mooney clan uh, was high up in Ireland. They were uh, descendants of a, of a king, uh, the first king of Ireland, or one of the great kings of Ireland, or something, I don't know. But I was looking up the Mooney name <clears throat> to see what its, uh, what its history was, and I have some friends that also have Mooney, uh, Mooney ancestry, which was interesting. Uh, but there's a philosopher by the last name of Mooney that is not a Christian that wrote a book on Soren Kierkegaard. So I ordered the book. I want to read what a what a thoughtful non-Christian would get out of Soren because I don't entirely know because I'm not that person. Uh, I don't think the book's going to arrive be hit before I hit my road trip, but it would be good if it did because then I could I could read it while I'm on my road trip. Uh, I think which would be interesting because I would be moving, so I'd be going through some stages myself. So yeah, the three stages of Soren, of course, are the aesthetic. And that would be Victor's uh, perspective, Victor E, and then the ethical, and then the religious. And again, I've may have uh, I may have encountered that somewhere else that these pseudonymous authors, <clears throat> uh, which is really Soren adopting these perspectives. It is and it isn't Soren. I guess that's the easiest way of saying it. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a link the other day. He's a teacher, just like I was in education for many many years, and. Uh, one of those uh, artificial intelligence uh, generators uh, that have, have taken the next step up where they can uh, simulate being a student, asked, asked uh, questions on an essay. And I read over this uh, essay by this AI generator, and my buddy and I were going, wow, that is like if a student turned that in, I would be like, I can't detect that's artificially artificial intelligence. I couldn't. Uh, the only thing that I picked up that was incorrect, it's not 100% right, was it said that Soren was anti-authority. And that's true in terms of human institutions. I think it's fair to say that Soren was an outlier. He was an extreme individual. 
we know that clerically speaking and also in terms of his battles with the Corsair and the crowd is that he wants people to be individuals. He doesn't want them to be part of the herd. And that, by its uh, definition, has some anti-authority elements. It means that you're not going to be as uh, keen to participate in a crowd or an audience or uh, a pile-on on social media, uh, that you're going to probably maintain a sense of perspective about being alone and seeing things with a, a, an individualistic perspective. And it doesn't, doesn't, again, it doesn't necessarily imply the person's a loner. It could. There's probably elements of that. Uh, but we've talked about if you come into an assembly, you're still a person. You're still an individual. God sees you as an individual, and Judgment Day is not a group. Uh, it's not a group activity. God doesn't grade on the curve like we talked about. Each person's going to have to give an accounting for their life. And Soren works backwards from that individual examination that God is going to do to all of us and says, well, if that's true about Judgment Day, it's true about life in this earth, that we have to be individuals. Um, and when we go to the office of confession, we don't bring people in with us into the into the uh, into the office itself. Talked about group confession, how that can often be somewhat just routine, uh, because people say, "Well, I'll, I'll participate in the group reading about a confession of historical sins," but that's not who I am. Uh, that's not who I am at all. Uh, but I'll still participate because it's expected here. So Soren's not anti-God. So this uh, this AI was wrong because it said that Soren across the board was anti-authority, and that is not correct. Um, uh, Soren is pro-God, and God is the ultimate authority. What Soren is against is the exertion of authority against the individual in this world who speaks the truth. Uh, the crowd is dishonest. The crowd is is a, a, a leveler. So that clarification would be something I would mark on the essay as being incorrect, but a student might misunderstand that too. So just because the AI didn't get that right doesn't mean that that would have given me a clue that somehow uh, the, uh, that the essay had been written by an AI generator because students often make those kind of mistakes. They can make a generalization where it's not nuanced enough. Uh, so the mistake actually may have been more inclined to make me believe that a student had written it. But it also shows that AI is not perfect. Uh, so that, it's on its way. Uh, Soren always believes in objective truth, but he says that objective truth has to be internalized, which means a person needs to own the truth themselves and act upon it. That's the subjectivity piece of Soren that people often get thrown off by, that they don't quite understand uh, but Soren is not a subjective individual in terms of his beliefs. He's very objective. He just believes those, those beliefs have to now be activated through the subject, the person. That's the term subject. Now, fear and trembling gets into some ideas that I'm not entirely comfortable with uh, Soren's perspective on, which he talks about the uh, temporary suspension of the ethical or the su suspension of the teleological. I don't think that's it. I don't think God is calling uh, Abraham to an evil act, which certainly killing someone is an evil act. Uh, now, the scriptures do talk about in Hebrews that Isaac would be raised again. God, God promised that he would raise Isaac again. So it's not really murder in one way because God has the ability to raise the dead. That's kind of a, a foreshadowing of Jesus, of course. A lot of times in scriptures, these, these elements and part of these stories are fulfilled in Jesus' life. Uh, the story of Joseph being disowned by his brothers and 
being loved by his father but being sold into slavery is kind of a, an archetype of Jesus being misunderstood by his family. Um, uh, Daniel walking through the lion's den is, is somewhat like Christ being able to be raised from the dead, like uh, defying physical reality, physical principles, and not, not uh, having a hair on his head uh, burned by the fires, that resurrection runs counter to the material universe. We know it does. It's not a contradiction, so to speak. It's what underlies reality. Um, but it's also true that... Um, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac is a model of what, what God did to his son, uh, Jesus, to, uh, to make him the sacrifice. Now, my read on it, and this comes very heavily from my work with kids and parents for 35 years and so, and specifically more than 30 years I worked as a school counselor, is some parents want to control their children. They see it as, as love and compassion to be so protective of their kids. And a lot of my generation, this was earlier true earlier on when uh, people of my generation were rearing, rearing ch ch uh, kids was my generation was the latchkey generation. It's when our, when our moms went to work. That was the first generation of women that started to leave the house and put their kids into daycare and all that kind of stuff. And that's still very common today. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's something that's just a reality. But um, our parents did have a philosophy of, uh, to some extent, of children are better seen than heard. Uh, that you know, children were to be submissive to their parents. And the '60s was about that up upending of that parental order, where parents were considered um, harmful at times to their children. Uh, that you could only trust your peers because only they truly knew what it was like to grow up uh, in the era that you grew up in. Uh, but I think what happened was, is a lot of my generation, and it's just carried through, of, of children that were raised, um, never felt particularly close to their parents. I know I didn't. Uh, there were times I felt close to my mom growing up, but my dad was somewhat of a, kind of a distant figure, kind of in and out, and not really emotionally available, even if he was sitting five feet away from me. And that's changed to some extent as he's gotten older, especially as he has some uh, some needs and things. Uh, so I think what happened when the, when this generation, when the Gen Xers, and I'm just, uh, I'm a boomer, but I'm at the end of the boomer generation and the beginning of the X generation followed me soon thereafter, 65 or so. These parents uh, decided to have strong relationships with their kids. They decided that they were going to make the kids a focus of their life or the focus. And there is danger in that because what happens is that the kid is not learning how to uh, how to leave the nest. Uh, they they're, they become more dependent on uh, their parents' assistance financially, emotionally, physically. Phones are only an inch away, as we know. One of the big problems we had in the high school, you know, kids would text each other and send each other inappropriate things, but parents were also contacting their kids during the school day about things that were not that important, like, hey, blah, 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 how you doing, something like that. That's disruptive in the school environment. So our big battle was um, not just uh, policing or monitoring students' uses of uh, smartphones with each other during the classroom, which is disruptive often. It's also the parents communicating non-essential information to their children uh, during the school day. And often, uh, if it was something that was critical, they didn't give us time to deal with it. Like, let's say the kid texted their mom or their dad and said, so-and-so is picking on me or whatever. And that happens a lot in school. 
uh, we would get a scorching phone call from a parent or an email saying, hey, why aren't you dealing with such and such with my child? And we're like, we don't even know about it. The kid didn't tell us. They told you, and now you're telling us. Uh, the kid had the responsibility to tell somebody, and then we could work on the, on the issue and, and know something about it when the parent called. All right, so anyway, I think what happened in Abraham and Isaac is Abraham loved Isaac on, in an unhealthy manner. He uh, doted upon him. He made him a spoiled child. And Isaac was to be the patriarch of the, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the next line uh, leading to the Messiah. And it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And those are the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so for Isaac to become who he needed to be, and he still had his spiritual battles, don't get me wrong, uh, his relationship with his parents was just one of them. Abraham had to, had to sacrifice his child, um, spiritually speaking, to set him free, uh, to make him the person he needed to be. What happens a lot with parents is they squelch their children's independence. And we wonder why kids are not good at problem solving. We wonder why kids are getting stressed out. We wonder why they don't develop strong wings for flight. We wonder why they are so needy. We wonder why they, why, why this generation has experienced a level of hopelessness and helplessness. And it's because of the parents in our culture. We don't treat kids like they have agency. We don't make them responsible. The dark side of all this supportive environment that we've created, the the you can't fail environment is kids do not learn how to deal with adversity. They don't develop the strength. It's like their, their bones and their skeletons not being stressed enough to make them strong enough. Now, I know it's a bit of a generalization, but the mental health crisis among early adults and um, teenagers is well documented. And COVID played a role in, in, into it, no doubt about it. But COVID itself was an adverse event. Uh, not that much different than growing up in the Middle Ages where um, a third of England died in the Black Plague or a third of Europe or whatever. Talk about a hard time or starvation or what's going on in the Ukraine or living in North Korea where you have real adversity. I was in an online discussion with somebody recently that made the example that Trump is experiencing what people in North Korea or uh, another another uh, society like Iran, which is very oppressive, like uh, Trump is being punished by the by the powers that be, the media. And I'm like, if you're saying that Trump is experiencing something that someone in North Korea would experience, that's not true. Now, maybe analogous in a very slight way, but Trump runs his own social media empire. You're not, you're not allowed to do that in North, in North Korea. Uh, people are killed for. Uh, making the slightest negative comment about the the leadership kim or whoever is in charge of korea i think it's a guy named kim or uh in iran you you say something negative towards the uh towards the mullahs they chop your head off sounds like really i said you're an educated person you're going to say what what Donald trump is going through is what's similar exactly similar to what some or very analogous very similar to whatever somebody who lives in North Korea goes through. That's a ridiculous statement. I just happen to know enough about the world that people can't get away with that kind of nonsense. Um, so anyway, that's a confusing book to me because in Fear and Trembling, it does seem like Soren is being uh, somewhat subjective um, uh, about the uh, theological uh, suspension of the ethical. Uh, but I think, again, that Abraham really had to die to Isaac. He had to in order for him to become the parent that Isaac needed and for Isaac to become the man he needed, still flawed person, uh, that 
Abraham had to get very close to the bone there. God had to push him to the ultimate limit to get him to release his grip on his son. That's my read on the situation. I don't know if that's correct. But remember that uh, Fear and Trembling, that book was written by another uh, synonymous author, uh, according to Sorn, was Johannes de Silencio. Uh, so Sorn's writing that, but again, adopting a perspective uh, through the pseudonym. Uh, so again, I believe the next book is going to be the 18 Upbuilding Discourses. I took some time just to kind of do all that because we don't really have that much more to read in this last chapter here. Uh, so we are going to finish it up. We talked about last week, this consciousness is the straight gate and the narrow way, being an individual. As by its very nature, the crowd's way is always broad. There, there the poisonous ornamental flower of excuses is found in bloom. The inviting hid, hiding places of evasion are there. Their comparison wafts or wafts in its cooling breath. I think it's wafts, right? Wafts. I love that word, wafts. It kind of sounds like what it means. Wafts its cooling breath of air. This way leadeth not unto life. Only the individual can truthfully will the good. And even though the penitent toils heavily, not merely in the 11th hour of confession with all the questions standing as accusations of himself, but also in the daily use of in repentance. Yet the way is the right one, for he is in touch with the demand that calls for purity of heart by willing only one thing. And Soren does come back to the same themes over and over and over and over again. Anybody who would say that I'm redundant <laughs> or repetitive, uh, remember, uh, that's what Soren does. This is the, these stages in life's way is all over the place. It's, it's, in, uh, it's in all of his books almost. Uh, Soren writes the same ideas over and over again uh, with a slight variation or slight different perspective. If you, my listener, um, unquestionably know much more concerning the office of confession than has been set forth here, if you know the next thing that follows upon the confession of sins, Still, this extended talk has not been in vain. If it has made you pause, made you pause before something that you already know well. You who know so much more, but do not forget that the most terrible thing of all is to live on, deceive not by what one might expect to be deceived. Alas, and on that account, horribly deceived, but deceived by too much knowledge. Uh, deceived by too much on. Live on, deceive not by one, but by what one might expect to be deceived, but deceived by too much knowledge. Consider that in these times, knowledge doesn't save people. It may remind me of these um, churches that used to have Bible trivia games where kids were uh, in competition with each other, like in a trivia game, but it's about the Bible. And they, they uh, learn to uh, answer Bible questions uh, correctly and uh, or memorize uh, Bible verses and all this stuff is good. It's good to be biblically knowledgeable. It's good to memorize uh, scripture verses because there may come a time that we don't have access to the word for some reason uh, through political oppression or something. But the problem about knowledge itself, if it's not acted upon, if it's just a test, if it's just an exam, uh, that could also lead to a disembodiment because the purpose of knowing the word and uh, knowing Bible verses is to live them, to to make them come to life and I uh, have a friend that works in a Christian environment he says his kids are so afraid about being wrong they've grown up in these uh, environments where having the right answer is really the issue it doesn't really matter if we're entirely compassionate or kind or 
loving towards the lost or whatever. It's like, do you know the right answer? Can you give the right answer if you put under pressure? And it makes being an, an educator in that environment very difficult because the kids are afraid of being wrong, so they don't take chances because uh, they've grown up in environments which values being right. And, and it's right factually sometimes, not necessarily in terms of the spiritual perspective or uh, emotional perspective uh, towards others because we can be deceived by too much knowledge. Now, Soren has that in quotes. I don't know where he came if it comes from because it's not uh, footnoted, so I can't look that up. Or I could, but I won't. Uh, consider that in these times, it is particularly it is a particularly great temptation for speakers to leave the individual as quickly as possible in order to get as much as possible said so that nobody might suspect that the speaker did not know what every man in a Christian country knows. Alas, only God knows how the individual knows it, but what does it profit a man if he goes further and further, and it must be said of him, he never stops going further, when it also must be said of him, there was nothing that made him pause, uh, for pausing is not a sluggish repose, pausing is also movement, it is the inward movement of the heart. To pause is to deepen oneself in inwardness, but merely uh, going further is to go straight in the direct in direction of superficiality. Uh, we, uh, in education, we like to think that knowledge is, is, is the salvation, like being academically uh, informed or educated is, is the secret to life's, life's uh, puzzle. And knowledge is extremely important, don't get me wrong. Uh, but knowledge that is not used doesn't do a lot of good, or knowledge that's not activated doesn't do a ton of good. Uh, so Soren would be very emphatic that knowledge alone, uh, life is not a, is not a multiple choice exam. Often you're handed a blank paper in life, and, and your life has to write out what you truly believe on that blank paper. You don't give a, get a choice necessarily of the answers in front of you. Going further is to go straight in the direction of superficiality. By that way, one does not come to will only one thing, only if at some time he decisively stopped going further and then came again to a pause as he went further. Only then could he will only one thing, for purity of heart was to will one thing. So that's very similar to um, that pausing or that stillness that Soren is emphatically concluding on here. It's very similar to what he uh, stated initially uh, in his first section of The Lily of the Field and the Bird of the Air. And I love that book. Um, I have a lot of affection for that book. Okay, so this is Soren's concluding prayer in this, uh, in this book. And it should take a few minutes here. Father in heaven, what is a man without thee? And he doesn't ask that as a question. It's more of an exclamation point. What is man without thee? What is all that he knows, vast accumulation, though it be but a chip fragment, if he does not know thee? What is all of his striving? Could it even encompass the world but a half-finished work if he does not know thee? Uh, thee, the one who art one thing and who art all. So may thou give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing, to the heart sincerity to receive this understanding, to the will purity that wills only one thing, and prosperity may thou grant perseverance to will one thing, amid distractions collectedness to will one thing, and suffering patience to will one thing. O oh, that giveth both the beginning and the completion, may thou early at the dawn of day give to the young man 
the resolution to will one thing. As the day wanes, may uh, thou give uh, the old man a, re a renewed remembrance of his first resolution, that the first may be like the last, the last like the first, in possession of a life that has willed only one thing. Alas, this has, alas, but this has indeed not come to pass. Something has come in between. The separation of sin lies in between each day and day after day. Something is being placed in between. Delay, blockage, interruption, delusion, corruption. So in this time of repentance, may thou give the courage once again to will one thing. True, it is as an interruption of our daily task. We do lay down our work as though it were a day of rest. When the penitent, and it is only in a time of repentance, that the heavy laden worker may be quiet in the confession of sin, is alone before thee in self-accusation. This is indeed an interruption, but it is an interruption that searches back into its very beginnings, that it might bind up anew that which sin has separated, that in its grief it might atone for lost time, then in its, in its anxiety it might bring, bring to completion that which lies before it. O oh, thou that givest both uh, the beginning and the completion, give thou victory in the day of need, so that what neither a man's burning wish nor his determined resolution may attain to may be granted unto him and the sorrowing of repentance to will only one thing. Hallelujah and amen. Uh, that's the entire book. Now, this is quite a bit longer than uh, the book that we did first, uh, The Lily of the Field and the Bird of the Air. I always want to put the birds first for some reason, so I have to always check that. Uh, the Lily of the Field and the Bird of the Air. Uh, um, 219 pages. So that's completed. I am so excited. To have this book finished, uh, that's two down. Uh, the books that I've, of Soren's I've read, I haven't talked about them all completely in this episode yet, but I have read uh, completely and done a podcast episode, uh, podcast episodes on the lily of the field and the bird of the air. So that is one book that has been podcasted. Also, number two, uh, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. That's been read digested and podcasted uh, i have read fear and trembling i don't think i'm going to take that in on on anytime soon in terms of a podcast i have read 18 upbuilding discourses and my goal maybe would be to do one episode per each essay and there's 18 of them so that would be 18 weeks but it might not turn out to be exactly that or might not be that at all and uh that's pretty much it so uh yeah I appreciate your listening to this. Uh, if I don't podcast in the upcoming weeks, uh, please go back and re-listen to uh, some of the podcast. I think what I'll do uh, as a new policy or new procedure or new principle is when I start a new book, uh, which again I'm thinking is going to be the 18 Upbuilding Discourses, but it might be this book by this uh, Professor Mooney because uh, it might be really helpful to explore what a non-Christian who knows a lot about Soren, what his take would be on Soren's um, theological commitments and belief in God and how that would or would not impact uh, how Soren can assist people that aren't Christians. 
that might be very useful. But again, I'm not really inclined to be too much of a skeptic. I don't want to give too much time to people that, uh, in this podcast in particular, who are not Christians. And if I were to do a, a conference or some kind of workshop on SORN and invite others, I don't want somebody getting up there and saying, well, you know, I'm not a Christian, so I, you know, I, I don't believe what Soren did, uh, but I will give you my thoughts on him. And now if we present it as a skeptic's view of Soren Kierkegaard, that's different. But if I kind of sell this as an event for Christians to come to to learn more about Soren, and somebody gets up there and dismantles the faith, uh, deconstructs it in front of their eyes, I don't want to get into those kind of situations. There's plenty of people, there's plenty of places that do that across the globe, not just with Soren, but everybody else. Go find that audience if that's what you're inclined to do. This is ultimately about attempting to be true to Soren completely uh, about where he came from as a believer and how his message uh, is particularly suited for today. In a skeptical age, Soren is a speaker to that skepticism by ultimately offering the hope of the gospel and to be silent before God to let God speak to us and for us to uh, confess our sins and for us to come to a resolution and have that uh, reconciliation inside of us, which heals the brokenness in us. And then we can go to the world and be a more of a, a healthy presence and a holy presence, uh, not a perfect presence, of course. But the Lord, the Lord uh, makes us empowered to do his work. Um, he first uh, works on the individual and then the individual is prepared to go. And there's times that people need to have moments of preparation. Jesus himself did not begin his public ministry until he was 30 years old. So he spent a lot of time and a lot of years just preparing. So that's okay. Uh, God would rather us be completely committed when we go versus being halfway committed and leave earlier. He wants us to be a whole person before we take the next steps. So the, uh, the, the road trip definitely promises a lot of adventure and at least some anxiety on my part. Travel always increases anxiety in me, until, at least until I get going. Once I get going, it's too late. I've, uh, I've traveled a lot, relatively speaking, compared to most because I've been able to. And I'm usually pretty anxious before I, I actually leave. But once I leave, I'm usually pretty just forward-looking. Forward I don't look back much. And... Uh, Pardon that. Uh, by the time I get to Chicago, um, I think I'll be completely 100% invested in what's in front of me. Until then, there's always the opportunity to turn back. Not that I would, but uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Indianapolis, Chicago, Minneapolis, and then I head to uh, the Crazy Crazy Horse uh, Monument in Mount Rush, Rushmore in South Dakota. They're very close to each other, apparently. And... Uh, then California at some point, but going through um, Missoula, uh, Montana, where I've been before. Then to Spokane, and then down to uh, Salem, Oregon, where I have friends. I have friends up in Spokane. I have friends uh, family in Minneapolis. I have friends uh, in Chicago. I have family in Indianapolis. I have family in Pittsburgh. I have a friend in California, a couple of them in different places, Sacramento and Los Angeles. So I have my hotel room planned and reserved in L.A. I figured I didn't want to wait on that one. Hopefully I can get out there in time. But L.A. can be a bit demanding in terms of its uh, availability of hotel rooms. So I didn't want to get out there and not have that secured. But then I uh, come back east through Phoenix, uh, New Mexico, 
Austin, where I spend, plan to spend several days. Uh, New Orleans, where a friend of mine has admonished me that I can't just do a one-day tour there. So I may spend a couple more days uh, there. And then up through North Carolina, Asheville, where I've been before, but it's been about 12 years, 11, 12 years. Uh, I might connect and go to a place called the Merle Fest, where Mom and her boyfriend are going to be volunteering. I might just blow through for half a day and check out some music, uh, the Merle Fest. And then I head to... Uh, close to Raleigh uh, to see some good friends that used to live up here in New York and um, haven't seen them in a while. And then I go to D.C. and hang out with some friends there. And uh, people have been gracious enough to um, provide a bed for me in some cases, in most cases. So it saved me a little bit of money. And um, as the day wanes, uh, the 11th hour, so uh, time is short. If you have something in your heart that you want to do, uh, don't don't delay. Sometimes you have to wait. And sometimes you have to prepare. But there's plenty of people who pass away with not accomplishing what they felt God gave them to do in this life. So if there's something you want to do, and it's godly and it's good and it's adventuresome and it could be travel or it could be writing a book or it could be uh, getting married uh, with wisdom. Could be taking on a demanding job or a career that you feel like you've been called to. Don't delay. Uh, failure is not a, uh, a fearful thing often. Uh, failure is just a way of learning. So you don't have to be perfect. Uh, you don't have to be perfect in life. God's grace is big enough to take care of you if you, uh, if you don't do things perfectly. Just have a heart to learn. Uh, so I'd admonish you and encourage you to live life with a sense of adventure. Um, I believe there's more than this life, but this life is very profoundly beautiful and it's got a lot of lessons to teach us. And I can't imagine when we come to the end of our days that it all is wasted away and thrown in the trash can. I believe God is going to continue to use us in eternity with our giftings to, I don't know, explore or colonize the universe. Who knows? It's a big place. And God talks about there shall be a, a place prepared for us. And the ancients had no idea how big the universe is it's it's unbelievable how big it is and uh maybe god has appointed us to be a, a region over a solar system who knows i can't believe though we would learn all this stuff and develop all these skills and go through all these heartaches and and just in the end it would just go back in the trash can i i don't believe that i believe that what we're learning here is fundamental to what comes after this existence so Live life like there's no tomorrow, uh, but believe there is a tomorrow. I don't know. There's a bit of a paradox there. Don't don't wait on today and tomorrow. Do do what you must. Uh, so in that sense, you, nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. That's a biblical idea that James says. Uh, can't say such and such. I shall go to such and such a city and make such and such a profit. Even on this trip, I always try to remember to be God. Saying I shall be in California on such and such a date, God willing. You know, because in the end, we only have so much control. But um, there is no tomorrow necessarily in this world. So if you want to do something, do it. Uh, but remember, there's something else on the other side of tomorrow. I'll leave you with that. So if I do not, uh, if I do, not uh, do an episode or podcast episode the next four weeks, I will check back in at the beginning of May. Or if it's before then, who knows? <laughs> Ponder the mystery.